0: They have
2: planned that are now leading us into a one-world communist government.
1: Welcome, useless eaters, to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, depolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative
0: task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific technological elite and when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body
2: the soul of our country but take my word for it this scourge will stop what's going on friends
1: I am just stopping the scourge here. Odd Man Stopping the Scourge. I probably should have called the podcast Stopping the Scourge. Anyway, I've got a good show lined up for you. It's part two of kind of refuting some of these false claims in the Zeitgeist movie and astrotheology in general. And if you listen to part one, you realize that, well, Jordan Maxwell has been visited by aliens. He's told them that he'll do their bidding. He's laid in the tomb in Egypt and went through some sort of initiation rites, according to him. And it's not hard to see where this guy's coming from. He basically is a ripoff of Blavatsky and Manly P. Hall. And, of course, Hall took on a lot of the things that Blavatsky taught. But if you look at Blavatsky, she was into certain teachings like Gerald Massey, who was also an influence for Acharya S., for Zeitgeist. So it's just this big circle of people. And some of these things have been refuted decades and decades ago. And I'll mention again, and we'll get more into this eventually. But Gerald Massey was a Druid, a Grand Druid. So you have to realize that a lot of these claims. They don't come from people who've studied this stuff very, very well and have been taught how to read hieroglyphics and different things like that. It comes from people who are occultists who are making claims that go along with their occult beliefs. And that's fine if you want to do that and you want to believe whatever you want to believe. But again, you don't have to be a Christian to want to know the truth and want to seek a deeper meaning and, and try to kind of go through these things and see what is right, and what is wrong, and what is questionable, and what hasn't been answered. So that's all I'm trying to do here. Believe whatever you want to believe, but I think this is interesting, and the way that, really I was thinking, Jordan Maxwell has been very influential, because a lot of these things were kind of forgotten about, and he kind of, with his uh, presence online, he hit right at the right time to really spread a lot of these things, and get them out there in the zeitgeist right and so they spread like wildfire online and they've made a resurgence over the last few years and then you know there's these younger guys putting out this stuff and building on top of it a lot of these things are easily refutable but a lot of people don't understand if they just knew a few of these falsities then they might thinking in their minds, well, maybe I need to look into this deeper, but if, when you don't know about a subject, it's easy to be fooled and just taken in by whatever the teacher is teaching, so it's kind of like when we were in school, and they were teaching us about World War One and World War Two, and we were believing every little thing that they said, and we never knew better, and some of us still don't know better, you know, there's people that are my age and older, and they still, even though they may have been Trump people, even... Though they may have been skeptical of some things that have happened in politics or even a lot of things, it's odd because they're still not skeptical of the history we were taught, the 20th century history, and especially the stuff surrounding the wars and different things like that. So, you know, people have their own prejudices, and it's hard to get over those. But I am just want to do these shows to kind of show people that there's charlatans amongst the conspiracy People too, You know, people want to make a buck. They want to get attention. If they can try to do something that's nobody else is doing or few people are doing, then they see an opportunity there to make money and to get attention and to, you know, to sell whatever products they are peddling. So, you know, it's not hard to see that. So let's just get kind of right into the show. And I'm going to be, of course, talking more about Zeitgeist and Jordan Maxwell and these other things. But also I'm going to be hitting on some of the stuff that these newer guys are saying too, because I think it even has less credibility or is less believable perhaps than the stuff Jordan Maxwell, because he was fairly polished in the things he was saying. And he's had a lot of time to come up with those things or not even come up with them, but take what he's learned from Blavatsky and Manly P. Hall and people like that. And also I'll say really quickly you know, Zeitgeist was a polished production. I'm not sure who funded it, and I've been thinking about looking into that and seeing if I can actually find out who did fund it. Uh, but I'll, I'll just uh, put this out there. I'll go back to my buddy John Brisson, who alerted me to the fact that the Rockefellers funded the Nag Hammadi Library, the Gnostic Library. So we have to remember that this Great Awakening... A lot of people are into right now, and that's if that's your thing, go for it. But uh, just remember that the elites have a lot of these esoteric beliefs as well, and you have to wonder what they're planning. Uh, Well, you don't have to wonder really; you know what they're planning. It's a new world order. It's a new world utopia. You know, I was listening to a Manly P. Hall lecture yesterday because I like to get you know these guys. I like to get their opinions and what they thought. And it helps me to understand like man, there was points and I listened to actually two lectures where Peter Joseph, some of the things he said in Zeitgeist were word for word. Things that Manly P. Hall had said in his lectures. And then if you go back and look at some of the writings of Jordan Maxwell and like that old time religion and the matrix of power or whatever, it's the exact same thing that Manley P. Hall was saying, just worded just slightly different. So anyway, I just thought that was interesting. And but Manley P. Hall was saying he was talking about the alchemical process and it really kind of rang in my head, even though I've kind of been talking about order out of chaos. He was talking about how an alchemical process, often things need to be destroyed in order to make things anew and make something new that is better. And so immediately my mind thought the Great Reset. And That's what the elites and really the occultists have been trying to do with the New World Order for decades. They want to destroy the old world and build a new world. But really the new world is the old world, if you know what I mean. Like they want to get back to what they thought Atlantis was like even though they don't know exactly what it was like or if it even really existed. And I tend to think that it may have existed, but I don't think that it was a utopia. There may have been a place called Atlantis, but there's no such thing as a utopia on Earth. Uh, People just can't, uh, I mean, that is not what humans are about. We're about strife. We're about, you know, struggle. And we just can't get past that. So I don't know if they believed that these people were gods, fallen angels, or something like that. But uh, they think that, you know, we're going to get back to this utopia. Now, the alchemical process, destroying things to build anew, is he also talked about, of course, the philosopher's stone. And you start off with the rough ashlar stone. And you polish your stone until it becomes this beautiful diamond, or the philosopher's stone, right? But you have to understand, with this great reset and this alchemical process that's taking place, the elites on the stone. They are destroying small businesses. They're destroying people's individuality and ability to make money and be more dependent away from the government. So they own the diamond. They're creating this order out of chaos in which they will control even more things than they already control. So you kind of see that alchemical process working and working in their favor. So anyway, I just wanted to point that out and let's see what we can find here. I've got some great stuff for you and I appreciate everyone's feedback on this show and I'm sure that uh, it's made some people upset, but I haven't heard too many negative things so far. So let's do this, people. Let's get back to it. We'll listen to more Jordan Maxwell nonsense as he tries to claim that manna from heaven in the Bible was mushrooms.
0: Here we're told about the manna from heaven. I don't know if you've ever remember. Moses was uh, leading the children of Israel to pick manna from heaven. They would find manna from heaven on the ground each morning, the Scripture says. Here they are picking up the manna from heaven on the ground each morning. Here in Exodus (coughs) 16, 14 it says, And when the dew that lay on the ground was gone up, behold, the face of the wilderness there lay a small round thing. So they call that mana. Well what is mana? The mana from heaven was a small round thing and it says when the dew that was on the ground of course when the sun comes up it evaporates and behold upon the face of the wilderness there lay a small round thing. <clears throat> mana meaning Hebrew what is it? It had seven characteristics from the old ancient world. Small, round, wafer like, sweet, could be hard, can be melted and it was obviously from heaven because when you ate the manna, you could talk to God.
3: Did you catch that? He moves on from that last characteristic, which was from heaven, and just simply says, because you could talk to God, because it helps with his shrooms or manna theory, but the text in no way indicates or implies or suggests that manna had any purpose for talking to God or any other spiritual connotation whatsoever. It was strictly used for sustenance, Here, watch it again, and watch how he makes the connections to mushrooms. Also, take note of the other characteristics he mentions for manna.
0: Mana, meaning Hebrew, what is it? And it's seven characteristics from the old ancient world. Small, round, wafer-like, sweet, could be hard, can be melted, and it was obviously from heaven. Because when you ate the mana, you could talk to God. Well, now we found out mana was a small, round thing, mushrooms.
3: There are many problems in the text itself with trying to make mana psychedelic mushrooms. For instance, neither the psilocybin mushroom nor the Amanita muscaria mushroom will grow in the desert. The text also says that the mana would melt in the desert heat. This is not a characteristic of either one of those types of mushrooms, especially in the desert. In addition, it said that if it was left out, it would begin to stink and then get worms in it. Again, this is not the characteristic of either one of those mushrooms when they would simply dry up. It also makes it quite clear that they used manna every day for food. This would not be possible with either one of those mushrooms in nutritional value. In addition, in Exodus chapter sixteen thirty one, it says the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Anybody that's ever eaten psychedelic mushrooms would tell you they taste like a lot of things, but like wafers made with honey is not one of them.
0: And here are the priests of, of Israel. Here's the Hebrew priest of Israel wearing a mushroom on his head. The mushroom headdress. I've often wondered, see, because the mushrooms were a hallucinogenic, uh, a hallucinogenic drug. <clears throat> and I've often wondered is that why they call the priest high priest? <laughs>
3: I'm only addressing this one because I've actually received emails from people telling me that this is where the Hebrew term, the high priest, came from. Even Maxwell seems to know that this is an impossibility and is only using it as a bad joke. Because the term high priest, you must first realize, is an English slang term, the word high. In Hebrew, the word for high priest was gadol which means great or large in number, intensity, loud, older, importance, that kind of
0: thing. There is virtually not one concept, belief, or idea expressed in Judaism or Christianity. Not one. That cannot be traced back many, many times to many different religions. Baptism is, of course, being submerged in water the ancient peoples re- related that when a child is carried in a womb it is sealed in water and that's the way you know a child is going to be born is when the water breaks and so therefore water was always associated with new life being born and that's why when you are converting from the evil old world uh, to Christianity, you must, be, you must be born again. You are baptized. It's actually a very ancient motif.
2: It's at the school of Amen, Ipet Asut, or Ipet Asut, and other temples, where the priests also baptized the initiates once they finished 40 years. This is long before John the Baptist.
4: I went to Walter Burkitt, the German scholar of Greek mythology and Emeritus Professor of Classics at the University of Zurich. In his work, Ancient Mystery Cults, which is still considered a base, scholarly text in Hellenistic religious studies, he dismisses such sensationalism. Quote, Concerning dying with Christ and spiritual rebirth, there is as yet no philosophical historical proof that such passages are directly derived from pagan mysteries. It is appropriate to emphasize that there is hardly any evidence for baptism in pagan mysteries, though this has often been claimed. Of course, there are various forms of purification, of sprinkling or washing with water, as in almost all other cults as well. But such procedures should not be confused with baptism proper, as a symbol of starting a new life. The water receptacles and sanctuaries of Isis, again, suggestive of baptism to our eyes, were used to represent the flood of the Nile, as wild study has shown." Quote. These adorable doctrines of the mystery schools that Maxwell's little theosophical recruitment film here is trying to brainwash you into zealously believing, first found white expression in the German religion which flourished at the end of the 19th century. Expectedly, as a scholarly approach, this method of attempting to attribute ancient pagan myth to the origins of Christianity died with the progress of archaeology and is today universally considered a dead and failed approach to Hellenistic study. It is only modern populars like Maxwell, Akaria S., Bobby Himmett, Peter Joseph, Christopher Knight, Robert Lomas, Asher Quasi, Michael Tasarian, Ray Hagens, and other members and promulgators of the esoteric doctrine taking advantage of the public's ignorance that are able to make these ridiculous claims about Jesus being a copy off of pagan gods. T. N. D. Mettinger, a senior Swedish scholar, professor at Lund University, and member of the Royal Academy of Letters, History, and Antiquities of Stockholm, wrote one of the most recent academic treatments of dying and rising gods in antiquity that has been endorsed even by Richard Carrier. Mettinger admits in his book, The Riddle of the Resurrection, that the consensus among modern scholars, nearly universal, is that there were no dying and rising gods that antedated Christianity. They all post-dated Christianity. Despite all this, Mettinger said that he was going to do his best to take an exception to that nearly universal scholarly conviction. He took a decidedly minority position and claimed that there were at least three and possibly as many as five dying and rising gods that predated Christianity. In the end, after combing through all these accounts and critically analyzing each of them, Mettinger concluded that none of them could possibly serve as parallels to Jesus, not one. He concludes his exhaustive survey by stating, quote, There is, as far as I am aware, no prima facie evidence that the death and resurrection of Jesus is a mythological construct, drawing on the myths and rites of the dying and rising gods of the surrounding world, end quote. Gary Habermas, who specializes in surveying the consensus of New Testament scholarship, elaborates, Well, I've done
0: a count recently of uh, 1,200 sources on the resurrection, everything published since 1975 in German, French, and English. And I went back and I looked, how many of these scholars who hold university chairs, for example, how many of them who are not Christians, who do not hold to the resurrection, how many of them would say that in any way the mystery gods are, are a potential inspiration for Christianity? And I can count the number of skeptics on one hand. I can count them on one hand out of 1,200
4: scholars. So now that you have an idea of what scholars think about this approach, let's look at some of these claims.
0: And all of the other saviors of mankind are just too many. They go on and on and on. In fact, let's compare them, shall we? Let's compare Jesus of Nazareth with Horus of Egypt, with Krishna of India, and with Buddha of the Orient.
4: Horus, baptized with water by Anup. Jesus, baptized with water by John. As we have previously mentioned, there was no form of baptism in the Egyptian mysteries, and there is no mention in any of the Horus myths about a baptism. This theory originates from the 19th century Gerald Massey, who was merely a poet and possessed no formal training or academic position in historiography. Not to mention, he was also chosen chief of the most ancient order of Druids from 1880 through 1906. He makes this claim on page 186 of his book, Ancient Egypt, Light of the World, but no substantiation is given. We find that Massey was also a popular writer for Blavatsky's Lucifer magazine. The following two websites will pay a combined $2,000 to anyone who can produce a single primary Egyptian text substantiating a baptism for horse. It's just simply not in the myths. Anna the Baptizer, John the Baptist. An Anap is a poor transliteration of Anabas that circumvents the Greek. Anabas was an embalmer, not a baptizer. There is no mention anywhere in any text of an Anap the baptizer. You will never see anybody offering a primary reference to such a name because it's simply a hoax. Again, the aforementioned two websites will pay $2,000 to anyone who can provide a primary text for this claim. Horus born in Anno, the place of bread. Jesus born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. This one also comes from Massey's book, page seven hundred and ten. It is incorrect. Anu, which is more properly transliterated Anu with an I, is the original Egyptian name of Heliopolis. It does not mean the place of bread like Bethlehem. In Egyptian, it means pillar. Horus identified with or cross. Jesus identified with the cross. I can't find anything at all on this one besides this single entry to it in the Theosophical Dictionary. The implication is that horse was crucified, which is completely false. He never actually dies in the myths, and the following two websites will pay you $2,000 again if you can provide a single primary text showing that he ever was crucified. The claim that the symbol of the cross for Christianity comes from Egypt is ridiculous in and of itself, being that you would have to somehow show that when the Romans were inventing crucifixion, they for some reason relied on this aforementioned Egyptian symbol for some strange reason. It just doesn't make any sense. Twelve followers of Horus, twelve followers of Jesus as the twelve disciples. My research in the academic literature does not surface this fact. I can find reference to four disciples, variously called the semi-divine shimsu, meaning followers of horse. I can find references to 16 human followers, and I can find reference to an unnumbered group of followers called Mesnui, or blacksmiths, who accompanied Horse in some of his battles, although these might be identified also with the hero Shimsu. But I cannot find 12 anywhere." Quote. It was a common Pharisaic practice for rabbis to take for themselves disciples to preserve their teachings. Jesus certainly took 12 as a messianic symbol for the 12 tribes of Israel. As Richard Carrier notes, one may be tempted to claim that the 12 tribes may represent the 12 signs of the zodiac, but this is impossible being that the formation of the 12 tribes of Israel antedated the division of the zodiac into the 12 signs. Horus of 12 years, Jesus of 12 years. The implication here is that he was a teacher at the age of 12. He never taught in a temple and certainly not at 12. He was hid in the papyrus swamps until he was old enough to rule Egypt. Horus made a man of 30 years in his baptism. Jesus made a man of 30 years in his baptism. Again, like most of the others, you can claim a reward, and there's no concept of a baptism in Egyptian religion. Horus the cursed, Jesus the Christ. You must first realize that the Greek word Christ means anointed. It is the Greek equivalent for the Hebrew word Messiah. The word Chris in Egyptian means burial. It is not a title, and it certainly isn't equatable with Christ. Nor is horse buried or killed. The star as announcer of the child horse. The star in the east that indicated the birthplace of Jesus. There's no reference to a cave or manger in the birth story at all. None of these details are present in the ancient Egyptian stories of horse. He was born in the swamps of Chemnis. His birth was not heralded by an angel. There is no star to announce his birth. Horus walking on the water, Jesus walking on the water. This one comes from page 831 of Massey's book, where he talks about how the sun reflects off the water and it appears as if it's walking on the water, which that in and of itself is a pretty weak and contrived argument. Then you have the problem that they are equating horse with the sun god Ra in order to do it, which is simply incorrect. Horse was the sky god, not a sun god. There is another god, Ra-Horakhti Raharakti, who is a little bit of both. These people never point you back to a concise primary text. They just drop these claims like a ton of bricks. Once you chase down their sources, if they even have any, they never support what they claim. Acharya S. made the same claim in her book, Relying on Massey. When she was asked directly several times if she could provide a primary text for Massey, she refused to respond. Horus, transfigured on the mount. Jesus, transfigured on the mount. For those of you who know anything about Egyptology, this one's particularly comical. You must realize that there was no concept of a glorified body in Egyptian religion that the Jewish idea of transfiguration refers to. To the Egyptians, the afterlife was similar to earthly life. They continued with material things, they could feel pain, and there was no idea of a Jewish end of time, rather a cyclic view of time. Nicholas Purin states, quote, The hope of the deceased was not for a better state in the underworld but for the continuation of earth-like existence in the thonic realm. It was through their funerary preparation of rituals that the Egyptians sought to recover, maintain, and perpetuate the comforts of earthly life. This transfiguration claim comes from page 193 of Massey's book. Then it gets regurgitated by Maxwell on page 14 of his book. Neither of them give a primary text, and Massey's is particularly ridiculous. On the same page, he equates Ra with the Holy Spirit and states, quote, Force rent the veil of the tabernacle, In quote. Of course he never cites a primary source for any of these either. The whole claim is simple. On page one hundred and ninety three of Ancient Egypt Light of the World, Massey talks about the transformation into the incorruptible Sa'u body and the quote twinkling of an eye, In quote. He makes it clear several times that he's taking the Egyptian Sa'u body to be the equivalent of Jewish transfiguration. I won't quote the entire passage because it's quite long, but I would beseech you to read this scholarly article in the following footnote by Nicholas Purin that refutes this exact claim that was first promulgated by Wallace Budge. Purin concludes by stating, quote, The very point of Paul's contrast between the incorruptible body and the corruptible body lies precisely in the fact that the former, as opposed to the latter, is free of destruction or harm of any kind. In the Egyptian understanding, the mummified body was constantly subject to possible injury. The dissimilarities between Paul's incorruptible body and the sa'u could hardly be greater. He also states, quote, Budge is misleading when he describes the sa'u as, quote, henceforth an incorruptible, end quote. And he also notes that if we are to equate the sa'u with the spirit body, then we must conclude that all of Egyptian existence consisted of having a spiritual body.
0: So, when you hear Christians talking about the last days and the end of the world and the end times, we're talking about the end of the age of Pisces. We're talking about, yes, the end times, the end of the age of Pisces and the coming age of the man with the water pitcher. Now when the end of the age of Pisces is coming and we will be going into the New Age of Aquarius. Oh, but that's devil worship. That's evil. That's astrology. No, that's
4: the Bible. They have this really long drawn out portion where they teach the New Age doctrine that Jesus in various portions of the Bible represent ages and that we are moving into the Age of Pisces. I'm going to play a clip from Keith Thompson's documentary, Refuting zeitgeist that makes short work of all of this.
2: Jesus ushered in the age of Pisces, or the age of two fish, unquote, then Aquarius with Luke 22, verse 10. They spend five long minutes on this, going through the Bible verses and giving their theory and inducting people into the New Age movement, explaining how supposedly Aquarius is in the Bible as being an age, and the Jesus fish supposedly representing Pisces. Zeitgeist is fast to explain that, quote, and ancient societies were very aware of this, unquote. They make sure to say that because their whole theory and that whole five minutes hinges on the idea that the ancients acknowledged the astronomical concept they refer to. If it turns out that this age concept is a modern concept, their whole theory falls apart and that whole five minutes was a big waste of time. As Dr. Noel Swerdlow, the professor of astronomy and astrophysics at the University of Chicago and who received the MacArthur Foundation Fellowship, often referred to as the Genius Grant remarks, quote, the modern ideas about the age of Pisces or the age of Aquarius are based upon the location of the vernal equinox in the regions of the stars of those constellations, but the regions, the borders between, Those constellations are a completely modern convention of the International Astronomical Union for the purpose of mapping and never had any astrological significance. I hope this is helpful, although in truth what this woman is claiming is so wacky that it is hardly worth answering. So when this woman says that the Christian fish was a symbol of the coming age of Pisces, she is saying something that no one would have thought of in antiquity. To name another anachronism that appears to underline her interpretation, the borders of constellations between, say, Aries, Pisces, and Aquarius are modern conventions of the International Astronomical Union, and there is nothing ancient about them. Ancient astrologers did not use Norton's Star Atlas or anything else that drew arbitrary lines between sidereal constellations. The location of the equinox among one or another zodiacal constellation, as the so-called Age of Aquarius or Age of Pisces, is something of concern to modern astrology, but is never mentioned as significant in ancient astrology. It is simply anachronistic to believe that what is important to 20th century astrology was of importance to ancient astrology, This means Zeitgeist's argumentation regarding the various astrological ages is irrelevant. In other words, the ancient Christ conspirators could not have recognized the 12 celestial sections in order to incorporate them into a Christian myth. And announced the ushering in of the age of pisces because the division into the celestial sections did not occur until a meeting of the international astronomical union in the 20th century and that's why christians have the fish on the back of the car dagon the fish god of rome in regard to the jesus fish Former professional astrologer for eight years, Marcia Montenegro, states, quote, The fish was an early symbol of Christ because the Greek word based on the initials of Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, spelled fish.
1: Well, there you heard from Chris White first, and then the long part was Elliot Nesh. And I'm sorry for the music in the background. It makes it hard to hear him, and there's a little bit of an echo, but unfortunately I couldn't do anything about it. But uh, you can tell that these guys are well versed and they have done the deep research to kind of refute some of these things. But I want to take the time to kind of look at a couple of these younger guys that are spreading this stuff around on the Internet or they've written books and stuff like that. I'm going to just address a few different things and then uh, we'll go back to some samples. Literally, with some of these guys, there's not really a method to their madness They'll basically take a verse, a specific verse, and say it mentions water. Well, they'll equate that with the sign of Aquarius or sheep, goats, bulls, rams. They'll equate to the astrological signs. And they only, like I said, they only take specific verses when, if you look at the Bible, it mentions those animals and water in numerous, numerous places and they don't look at the context of any of these verses for the most part, or at the verses surrounding them before and after. So you wouldn't do that with any historical book or any other type of book if you're trying to understand it and study it. I'm not an educated person, but I know these things, of course, from just doing research and just practical common sense. The peculiar
3: affinity with the occult is nothing out of the ordinary with zeitgeist. Part one of the initial Zeitgeist film was partially based on the work of a man that loved Theosophy so much that he apparently named himself Jordan Maxwell after Helena Blavatsky's Jordanus Maximus. Helena Blavatsky was the founder of the Theosophical Society. See also the movie Debunking Jordan Maxwell for more on this. Before discounting the political power of theosophy and its desire to infiltrate the truth seekers, you need to understand its concept of seed groups. These groups were sent forth to work in stealth so as to be nurtured without competition from those that would see them for what they truly are. When one wonders how or why anyone offering truth about the occult could, in fact, be part of the New World Order, they need look no further than Alice Bailey. One of the most specific goals of the Theosophist, as dictated by the externalization of the hierarchy, is the following. The education of the advanced thinkers, of the aspirants and world disciples in applied knowledge, expressed wisdom, and occult understanding. This group synthesizes all that is available in the other two groups, and thus forms the nucleus of the kingdom of God, of the fifth kingdom, which is so rapidly coming into being. According to Theosophy, starting with its founder, Blavatsky, God in the Kingdom of God is really Lucifer. This is Luciferian theology, not Christian doctrine. This is what Madame Blavatsky wrote in her book, The Secret Doctrine. The devil is now called darkness by the church, whereas in the Bible he is called son of God, the bright star of the early morning, Lucifer, there is a whole philosophy of dogmatic craft and the reason why the first archangel, who sprang from the depths of chaos, was called Lux, Lucifer, the luminous son of the morning, or Man, banteric Dawn. He was transformed by the church into Lucifer or Satan because he is higher or older than Jehovah and had to be sacrificed to the new dogma. Zeitgeist Addendum held over one central theme from its predecessor, that Jesus was and is just another form of all the other gods of antiquity. Unfortunately, in Zeitgeist's extensive reference material webpage and or reference book, there is nothing that specifically backs up any of these claims. There's actually a very good practical reason why Theosophy and the New World Order want to discredit one particular religion. I'll link a YouTube video from a non-Christian that I feel sums it up nicely in the description section of this movie as well. It's titled, They Are Misleading You. It should be noted that a critical thinker can't help but to agree with many of the practical points and issues raised in Zeitgeist Addendum. It is however so very important to be cautious about who we as truth seekers run to while trying to seek understanding in these confusing times. The key to understanding why the New World Order has chosen to expose itself lies in Bailey's externalization of the hierarchy. It says the new world order must be appropriate to a world which has passed through a destructive crisis and to a humanity which is badly shattered by the experience. The new world order must lay the foundation for a future world order, which will be possible only after a time of recovery or reconstruction and of rebuilding.
1: Yeah, and again, there's one guy making the rounds on most of the alternative media and conspiracy shows, and he's basically regurgitating the stuff that they said in Zeitgeist, at the first half of Zeitgeist, and even dedicated his book to Jordan Maxwell, and of course Maxwell ripped off Manly P. Hall, and uh, I'm even going to put in my show notes a lecture that Manly P. Hall did on astrotheology, basically. There's a few lines in there where Maxwell basically ripped off word for word, Manly P. Hall, but Hall was even going back to these Freemasons and Druids like Gerald Massey and stuff like that and getting some of his information and Blavatsky as well. So we got to remember that, keep that in mind. But uh, this guy, when he comes on these shows, he talks about the last cow caves. And that is his basis for saying that, astrotheology dates back 40,000 years. But if you actually do the research, the Lascaux Caves have only been assessed to go back as much as about 14,500 years. Not 40,000. He says the writings on the walls were all the animals from the modern Zodiac in the correct order. He says in the correct order, right? Even though that would date them back centuries before the Zodiac was created, because again, the Zodiac was created slowly over time by different cultures to what you have today in America, in the Western states and Western nations. And like I said, and I'll mention again, it's different in the Chinese Zodiac. You have different animals. The American Indian Zodiac is different. But this was a long process and used to when the zodiac was first put together. It was put together for agricultural reasons, not for all these reasons of divination and to see if you're compatible with a certain guy or girl and all these goofy things that have been created. It, it had nothing to do with that. So we have to keep that in mind. But so, from what I can find based on the carbon 14 dating. As well as a fossil record of the animal species portrayed in the paintings of the Lascaux artwork, it dates from the Upper Paleolithic period. The type of lithic industry or stone tools found and depicted further identifies Lascaux as part of the Perogordian culture, present in Europe from 15,000 to 13,000 BC. And in my show notes, if you'll look, there is video that you can see the Lascaux Cave paintings. You have the Hall of Bulls, which is a bunch of bulls in there. It's what it says it is. You have red deer, various felines, many that are now extinct. You have horses, bovids, plus a bird-headed man. It's just this one skinny stick figure type of man with a bird head. And he has an erect penis, by the way. So it's not... Like the researcher says, as far as the caves having the astrological signs in order, it's just total BS. There are missing animals that are not even in there or signs that are not even in there. But, hey, you know, I mean, there's really no rules to astrotheology or even astrology. And there's really not a lot of rules to a lot of the things you read from occultists. You know, they make up things on the fly, they draw connections, and many of them were probably well meaning and are probably well meaning. But you can take any subject, as I've said before, and draw like five or six, maybe more connections to it that has no real bond, no real connection whatsoever. Another simple thing that the guy talks about he tries to equate everything, all these different words and signs from the Bible, with the signs of the zodiac. Even says that Cain is a representation of Sagittarius with the arrow because Cain means spear. If you do the quick research, you realize that Cain means possessing or acquiring. This is simple. You can do this research, and there's quite a bit about the name Cain, and if you look at it in Hebrew and what it meant. So again, it's a twisting of the words, a twisting of the etymologies. So if people never look into what these guys say, they'll never know their lies or mistakes. So I've talked about another author quite a bit, and he hasn't come up as much in this episode, but he will come up in further episodes about this subject. Albert McElhenney, who's written a series of books that you can find on Amazon about Zeitgeist, about Jesus' mythicism, and about Jordan Maxwell. So... I'm going to let him speak for himself, this is an old video that he did, he did quite a few videos on the subject as well that have some of the same content as his books, and so it's not the greatest audio, but I'm going to play some parts anyway, and I think it'll be good enough that you can get the drift of what he's trying to say.
5: Maxwell was best known for his etymological derivations that supposedly revealed the hidden truths behind whatever conspiracy he was rambling on about at the moment. Most of these were quite laughable and dependent upon modern English and hence had no connection to anything in the ancient world. For example, let us now listen to Jordan Maxwell explain the connections between the name Abram, the original name for Abraham,
0: and the Zodiac. Abraham's first name was actually Abram, A-B-R-A-M, because in the ancient Hebrew Ab is father, and Ram, R-A-M, is Aries the Ram, the constellation of the Ram is Aries the Ram.
5: The problem with the preceding derivation should be quite obvious. The word Ram is in fact modern English, and hence could have absolutely no connection to the meaning of a word written in Hebrew thousands of years ago. Maxwell's constant barrage of similar linguistic tidbits, a few of which made their way into the original version of Zeitgeist, makes taking him seriously rather difficult.
6: And it is simple to understand why, as every morning the sun would rise bringing vision, warmth, and security, saving man from the cold, blind, predator-filled darkness of night. Without it, the cultures understood the crops would not grow and life on the planet would not survive. These realities made the sun the most adored object of all time.
5: Here we already have an attempt to set the groundwork for the idea of the sun as savior, an agenda that is built strictly upon terminology rather than any actual similarity. The question remains whether the sun was actually called savior at this early date of around 10,000 BC, and, if so, whether this concept had any similarity to the identification of Jesus as Savior. These matters will be addressed shortly, but also note there is the inference that the Sun was generally the premier deity in the ancient world. However, this was clearly not the case, as, for example, the Greek god Zeus, or the Roman equivalent Jupiter, was the ruling deity over any Greco-Roman god associated with the sun, such as Helios, Apollo, or Sol. Thus, while solar deities were important, and certainly the chief deities in some cultures, this was not a uniform condition across the ancient world. Likewise,
6: they were also very aware of the stars. The tracking of the stars allowed them to recognize and anticipate events which occurred over long periods of time, such as eclipses and full moons. They in turn catalogued celestial groups into what we know today as constellations.
5: There is an implicit assumption at work in much that follows that needs to be examined. Throughout the section on religion and zeitgeist, it is often presumed that the same constellations noted by one culture are noted by all. That is, the various groupings of stars as constellations are considered constant across time and place. However, this is simply not the case. Different cultures can and did group the stars differently. And even when they were in general agreement about a particular group of stars, they might disagree on what the grouping depicted. For example, the grouping we know as Aries the Ram was initially recognized by the Babylonians as a farmhand. Thus, we can hardly claim constellations were constant across cultures at different times. Something similar can be noted today, as most Americans would easily recognize the group of stars we know as the Big Dipper, but are far less likely to identify the constellation Ursa Major, the Great Bear, of which the Big Dipper is a part. It also needs to be pointed out that individual constellations might be recognized without ever considering more advanced concepts such as the zodiac. This is an important point since the early use of the zodiac is central to the theory presented in Zeitgeist. If the zodiac was not even at use in previous religious systems from 3000 BC and earlier as stated in the film, then the long-standing precedent Christianity allegedly mimicked could not even have existed. This is the cross
6: of the zodiac, one of the oldest conceptual images in human history. It reflects the sun as it figuratively passes through the 12 major constellations over the course of a year. It also reflects the 12 months of the year, the four seasons, and the solstices and equinoxes term zodiac relates to the fact that constellations were anthropomorphized or personified as figures or animals in other words the early civilizations did not just follow the sun and stars they personified them with elaborate myths involving their movements and relationships
5: it's interesting to note that while zeitgeist claims this cross of the zodiac is one of the oldest conceptual symbols in history it provides no ancient examples There's a good reason for this. There are none. In fact, the image that Zeitgeist does provide has, as you can see, the titles of the various signs of the zodiac written in modern English. Now, there is a related concept in the ancient world, generally termed a zodiac wheel, that can be seen in such artifacts as the Dendera zodiac, But these examples, as you see, have no cross. They are merely a wheel with the zodiacal signs and markings for things like the solstices and equinoxes, but they have no intersecting lines to make up the cross. Yet even these crossless examples do not show up until the Hellenistic era, and so they could hardly be listed among the oldest conceptual symbols in history. There is also an older concept called a sun wheel that pictures the sun as a fiery wheel, and thus the cross within the circle represents the spokes of that wheel. But even this concept, while representing the sun, has absolutely nothing to do with the zodiac, given this confusion it is probably a good idea to discuss the Zodiac and its history as recognized by actual historians rather than crackpot conspiracy theorists and 19th century occultists. If one imagines the background of stars in the sky as points on a celestial sphere, then the ecliptic would be the Sun's path along that sphere, which here you can see is given in green. The zodiac is then merely the constellations recognized as lying along the ecliptic, the sun's path through the celestial sphere. Now even if a culture were familiar with some or all the constellations that are part of the zodiac, they would not use the zodiac itself unless they had a special place for that specific group of constellations. We can recognize, in fact, how the concept of the zodiac developed by looking at writings from the ancient world. For example, the Sumerians were keen observers of the night sky, named various planets and constellations, including some we would recognize as part of the zodiac. However, they showed absolutely no interest in the ecliptic, and neither did the earliest Babylonian astrologers. The astrology at this point was based upon omens given by unique events, such as comets and conjunctions, rather than any relational grid system such as the zodiac, and this can be seen in the collection of cuneiform tablets known as the Enuma, Anu, and Leo that may date back as far as the 2nd millennium BC. The foundations for the later zodiac is set in the MUL.APIN from about 1000 BC, Although the zodiac itself does not appear in there, it does begin discussing paths through the sky and provides a lunar zodiac, the path of the moon, which it gives with 17 stations. It is this idea that will be developed further into the solar zodiac in the coming centuries. Of key importance was the beginning of Night Diaries of the Sky in the 7th century BC, and this one happens to provide a diary that includes a mention of Halley's Comet, or what we would now know as Halley's Comet. The first reference to the zodiac occurs in about 464 B.C., and the earliest horoscopes then appearing. This is, in fact, an example of an early horoscope. The dividing of the sky into 12 equal parts of 30 degrees each would then follow, but this division was not the same one used today, but differed by roughly eight degrees. Those eight degrees will be extremely important when discussing procession and the supposed ages. But for now, we should note that the idea that ancient civilizations were using the Zodiac at 3000 BC and even earlier
1: is pure fantasy. So that was Albert McElhenney. And I'm going to kind of cut in here and break up the monotony a little bit. Uh, the one guy that's going around, the astrotheologist, who is now a mason, by the way, according to his Twitter. But that's not surprising. Anyway, uh, he mentions Gobleki Tepe and how it is just nothing but an astrological observatory. And... I looked into Göbekli Gobleki Tepe. I think it is a very interesting find for sure. And it says here in discover magazine, earth's Northern hemisphere was covered in enormous ice age glaciers. When a group of hunter gatherers in Southern Turkey began constructing the world's first known temple. The site called the Gobleki Tepe was built roughly 12,000 years ago with some parts appearing to be even older. However, Because the ancient temple is so vast and complex, archaeologists have been busy excavating since its discovery in 1994. Along the way, they've uncovered strange animal carvings, towering stone pillars, and the earliest known evidence of megalithic rituals. But despite all those years of research, they are still working to unravel the site's biggest mystery. Who built it and why? It says the world's first observatory, question mark. goblecki design and age have captured the public's imagination for decades. It's been the subject of widespread and often breathless press coverage and documentaries, as well as countless conspiracy theories, from aliens to fantastical claims about ancient technology and advanced civilizations. Some scientists, primarily those not connected to the core group excavating the site, have speculated that Göbekli Tepe was actually an astronomical observatory, or perhaps even the biblical Garden of Eden. There are two major claims that those who think Göbekli Tepe had celestial connections point to. One suggests that the site was aligned with the night sky, particularly the star Sirius, because the local people worshipped the star like other cultures in the region did thousands of years later. Other claims that carvings at Gobleki-Tepi record a comet impact that hit Earth at the end of the Ice Age. If either of those are true, gobleki Tepe's extreme age would indeed make it the world's oldest known astronomical site. However, those claims of gobleki Tepe's connection to the night sky have been largely rejected by the main team actually excavating the temple. According to them, while the archaeological site is remarkably well-preserved, the forces of time have changed the location of certain features. For example, studies suggest some of the pillars were removed and recycled elsewhere. Furthermore, later civilizations in the area, and more recently farmers, have rearranged portions of certain pillars, even breaking pieces off. The researchers have since tried their best to restore gobleki pillars to their original location, but the initial layout of the site's stunning and round buildings remains up for debate. That makes it impossible at the moment for archaeologists to know whether gobleki Tepe had any astronomical significance at all. But there is another more obvious potential reason to doubt the site's buildings were once aligned to the stars. There is the significant possibility that we are dealing with roofed structures. This fact alone would pose limitations to a function as a sky observatory, the research team wrote in a journal article addressing the astronomical claims. So I will put that in my show notes, and it's got more stuff in there. It's pretty interesting, really. It explains a little bit more about Gobleki Tepe. And you can see some of the, uh, in different things. I think I, I found a, a pretty good website that shows some of the carvings. But this one shows a couple here as well. And it shows what appears to be kind of like a, it's a bird. There's a set. There's several birds. It looks like, uh, pelicans, maybe a duck and this other bird that looks like it could be a vulture. It's got a kind of a hooked beak. Uh, there is a scorpion, another type of bird or dog, maybe, I don't know. It's hard to tell. But uh, some people have said that those are all just astronomical signs, but they're really reaching if you look at the pictures, uh, the etchings. But uh, it is certainly interesting for sure. Another quick, simple thing I wanted to clear up is the Zeitgeistians talk about Jesus being a fisherman, and therefore that relates to the Age of Pisces. But if you actually look at the Bible, it actually says Jesus tells his disciples, who are fishers, I will make you fishers of men, meaning fishers of souls, missionaries, testifiers, or proselytes. So Jesus was not himself a fisherman. Another quick claim that one of the guys makes is the Bible verse in Proverbs 16 and 8. It says, The pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. The pride goeth before the fall is kind of the modern saying of that. But he says that's a direct reference to the Zodiac and the sign for Leo, because a gathering of lions is called a pride. Again, you got to go back to Hebrew, to ancient Hebrew, and you're equating modern English words with ancient Hebrew words. And so we look at the modern English word pride. It says Middle English, preed, P-R-E-D-E. From Late Old English, preto, P-R-Y-T-O. Kentish preed, again P-R-E-D-E. Merkin pride, unreasonable self-esteem, especially as one of the deadly sins, haughtiness, overbearing, treatment of others, pomp, love of display. And it says it's from prude. P-R-U-D. It says there's a debate whether Scandinavian cognates, Old Norse priori, Old Swedish pride, with a Y and a H-E at the end, Danish pride, as in P-R-Y-D, etc., are borrowed from Old French, which got it from Germanic or from Old English. It says, In Middle English, sometimes also positive, proper pride, personal honor, good repute, exalted position, splendor, also prowess or spirit in an animal, used in reference to the erect penis in 15th century, meaning that which makes a person or people most proud is from the 13th century, first applied to a group of lions in the late 15th century, but not commonly used until the 20th century. And then it has the Bible verse from the Wycliffe Bible from 1382. I just want to take this time to say that the Wycliffe Bible was really the first Bible translated into English. Wycliffe really resented the fact that the Catholic Church would not translate it into English from Latin, so the average people could indeed read it. And so he wanted to teach people how to read, and he went to the pubs and the different places to kind of get the the lingo of the day, and he tried to translate the Bible so as best people could read it. And so if you actually look at the King James Version of the Bible, even though there's a big to-do that King James was a Freemason, which it seems like he was, it wasn't as if they changed a ton of things. actually put his out 1382 and the King James used 70% of Wycliffe's translation. And that doesn't get talked about very much. But in time, you know, it's been hundreds of years since then. And so more and more copies of manuscripts of the Bible have been found all over the world, especially in the Middle East, because people would start to copy it and keep it for themselves so they could read it of course and so we know that not a ton of things have been changed you know that's kind of a uh, one of those things that is thought that oh we don't even know what was in it." it it's been changed so many times there's just no telling but people don't realize that there's been 20 some odd thousand manuscripts found over the years and most go right along with the bible except for just you know a few words so we know that The King James slipped in there the name Lucifer, which is just in there one time. And of course, the mystery schools have made a huge deal out of the term Lucifer. Gary Wayne says that Lucifer, of course, was a Latin word, but it really would transform into what it should have been is which is a name of an angel. Lucifer is not a name of an angel. So that was put in there probably so the mystery schools would have their own name that they could possibly worship and look to as their Savior. But anyway, getting away from that, I'll try to pronounce this Wycliffe version of the Bible verse. It says, Pride, gop, before contrition, and before falling, be spirit, shall been enhanced. Proverbs 18, the Wycliffe Bible. So anyway, I put that in my show notes. You can check that out as well. It's just these little things that they try to sneak in to mean things that they did not mean originally. And one has to look a little bit back into history to understand the lies of these Zeitgeistians. Well, we're getting to the end of the episode, and there will be more episodes on this, trust me, and I hope that you've enjoyed it. I'm going to leave you with a little bit from Joel McDermott, from his book, Zeitgeist, the movie Exposed, under astrological worship and biblical theology. He says, Like sun worship, the practice of astrology was known by the Hebrews and was condemned. God had forbidden all forms of seeking after knowledge outside of his revelation in the form of worshiping the sun, moon, and stars, and it was forbidden in Deuteronomy 4, and a long list of abominations comes from chapter 18 of that same book. It says here, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. Now let's talk about that for a quick second. Passing through the fire. The Freemasons say they are sons of fire. If you look into the phrase, pass through the fire, that was relating back to the different mystery school initiations at the time of the writing of the Bible. Now, some say, some scholars say that the passing through the fire was actually people putting their children in fire as a sacrifice to their gods, to the deities, the solar and lunar deities the constellations and whatnot. And some say, no, it was only a type of ritual that had something to do with fire. But I thought that was interesting that the Bible does mention these mystery school initiations. But I'll repeat that part and then go on to the next. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritualist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable in the Lord's eyes. It is interesting that God gives this warning in context of entering the promised land, which was then inhabited by the pagans. Here the early pagan myths' solar astral worship certainly flourished, but God's people were to avoid all the ways in which these pagans hoped to obtain divine knowledge or favor. The Israelites were to be set apart by their dependence on God himself and on his word, not relying on aspects of creation to help them cope or determine how to live. And he goes on, but I would just say that they end up, from a Christian's perspective, worshiping the creation, instead of the creator. And there are other verses in there that warn against such things. We look at Isaiah 47, 13 through 14. It says, Thou art wearied in thy multitude of thy counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators, stand up and save thee from the things that shall come upon thee. So it's just basically saying that you're putting your faith in these different types of occult beliefs, but they're not going to save you because God told you not to follow these things. Pretty much as simple as that. Another verse, uh, Jeremiah 10, 2, Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed. So there's various warnings in the Bible about getting into divination and those type of things regarding astrology. But I'll quickly mention, just so people know, at one time it was acceptable for the church to use astrology as far as for farming reasons and agricultural reasons. And then as I mentioned earlier in the show, people put all these other things in there and linked all these links that don't belong. And so You know, you can use a lot of things for good or for evil, and you can also fall into the habit of looking up to the stars instead of looking straight in front of you, if you know what I mean. And that's kind of an allegory, but people do kind of, uh, they start to daydream and they look too deeply into these things and they don't even see the world around them. So I think that may be one of the reasons why this was forbidden, but hey, that's just my take on it. All right, guys, that finishes it up. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I appreciate it so very much. Uh, I had Binkley on from the Propaganda Report. That was fantastic. I had a fellow by the name of Luis Perez on who cleared up a lot of things about Judaism and the Zohar and the different types of Talmuds and all kinds of stuff. So look for that to drop this week. I was on with uh, Billy Ray Valentine on the Infinite Fringe, and I really liked him, man. He's really cool. I did a show with John Brisson on his channel for We've Read the Documents on YouTube about the Pilgrim Society. John is awesome, and uh, we're really becoming friends, and I really respect him for his research. He's one of the best. And I was on with Bob Morale, on his show, Hidden in Plain Sight, and that's going to be out this week, I think. So I've been uh, really trying to get around and do more shows, and uh, I hope that you will check these out. I'll be linking them on my social media and on my Patreon. Speaking of, my Patreon is patreon.com forward slash out. Please join me, become a member of the Society of the Cryptic Savants, You'll get the shows early. You'll get videos as soon as I post them. What I do is I'll post the videos up on the Patreon a few days, usually before I post them on anything else. And I try to put the shows up a few days before I put them on the Podbean. And I put different posts on there and pics and just my thoughts sometimes. So help a a brother out if you feel led to. And so I love you guys so much. Thank you for your support. Listen to the Boiler Room on Alternate Current Radio on Thursdays, and as well listen to all their shows. You can also find me on FringeRadioNetwork.com. And it looks like things are looking up for 2021 as far as the Oddcast goes. I'm doing more content, and I got more shows planned. So thank you so much. I will talk to you soon. Cheers and blessings, and remember. Their order is not our order. See ya.
5: Keep those leaping lizards off my back. Right off my back.
3: you're blocking off the highway to the sun, and it's my son. oh yeah, oh
0: yeah, yeah,
5: there's a shining monkey standing in the light, right in the light. Scratches at my window every night,
0: most every night. Oh, yeah. Oh,
3: yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. What well, I tell you. What I want now, if it's not too much to ask It's a jewel inside the wound, inside your soul Well, I make my bid for diamonds, cause it's what I'm supposed to do But I think I'm much more comfortable with gold
5: It's off my back, right off my back
3: There's a violin in my head that's calling me And it's all green But I haven't earned the beauty know it's way too good for me And I'll do my best to twist it if I must so I'll take another mission and I'll stray for another town And I'll
0: watch my little valet turn to dust.